Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the National Library of Australia uh, for one of our NAIDOC Week events. I'm Margie Byrne, and I'm the Assistant Director General responsible for reader services and special collections here at the National Library. Um, the special collections being a very rich source um, of material which documents the Indigenous experience of Australia. As we begin, I acknowledge that we meet on Aboriginal land and thank the traditional custodians, elders past and present, for caring for this beautiful country. Now, in this week's NAIDOC Week, the theme is Our Languages Matter. And NAIDOC Week, it's been, gee, it's been a big year this year with the um, anniversaries of the 67 referendum and the Mabo High Court decision. But NAIDOC Week is our annual celebration of the history, culture and achievements of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And it's really important that we have these celebrations to, to acknowledge the unique um, and ongoing significant role played by Australian Indigenous people, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. And of course, um, language is a particularly um, important part of cultural identity. It links people to land and water. It transmits history, tradition, spirituality, story and song. And Australia had a very rich Indigenous language past, which has been threatened by all the events of the past, so that there are more than 250 distinct Indigenous language groups um, spoken across the land we now know as Australia at the time of European occupation in the late 18th century, many of them with many dialects. Um, now um, there are only around 120 of those languages still spoken and many of the languages are at risk of loss. So this afternoon we're really uh, fortunate to have Shannon Sutton share with us some of the early records of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages in the National Library's collection that he's uncovered. Shannon actually trained as an archaeologist and I asked him the other day whether he missed archaeology and he said no. <laughs> I think they're all weather conditions are better in a library. <laughs> but uh, he, So working in a library is Shannon's... Um, second career, and he began with us actually on the library's Indigenous graduate program in 2014, uh, but today he really enjoys being a family history reference librarian. I think Shannon loves working in family history. Shannon is one of nine Indigenous staff now working at the National Library, which is really something we're very proud of, that um, we've now got a, a significant group of Aboriginal staff making a huge contribution to the library and Torres Strait Islander staff, sorry. I'm very good about that usually, but I've just slipped. Um, and we're particularly proud that we've been able to recruit young Indigenous people from the tip of Cape York and the Torres Strait Islands and across the mainland states to work at the library. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander staff work in reader services they work as people who catalogue, describe and process collections and collection material across the full range of our collections, the published collections, physical and online, and also the special collection formats, pictures and manuscripts, oral history and maps. 
and they play a really important role in connecting the library and its collections with Indigenous communities, especially through online resources such as modules of the library's digital classroom offering, the preparation of research guides on topics, and you can also see some great videos they've made about the significant collections on the library's YouTube channel, and they're really inspiring. Um, we were just talking beforehand about it's so different hearing Indigenous people talk about Indigenous collections and people like me talking about them. A lot of this work began with projects that they started doing during their graduate year, and... Um, during Shannon's graduate program, which is probably feeling like quite a while ago now to him, uh, he researched um, fragmentary, particularly language holdings in, in the um, library's manuscripts collection. So not the Daisy Bates papers where we knew about the strength of the language material or, or the Matthews papers ditto, but where else in the manuscripts collection might... Um, language material be found and today he's going to share with us what he's found from that project. So please welcome Shannon. So many of you. <laughs> uh, thank you all for coming. Uh, I'd like to begin uh, my talk by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we meet today, the Ngunnawal people and I pay my respects to their elders past and present, as well as to any um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community members sitting with us here in the audience. Uh, everyone is uh, informed that this presentation features images of people that are deceased. Uh, so as Margie mentioned in her lovely introduction, my name's Shannon. Uh, I work here at the Library in Newspapers and Family History, which is my true passion now. Um, I'm Gunai. Uh, they're people from Gippsland in Victoria, around the Gippsland Lakes region, sort of centred around Orbos Bansdale. And I'm from the Stewart family, who come from the south coast of New South Wales, uh, around Wallaga Lakeway. So there's a, a big mission there. Um, so I identify for the most part as Corey. Uh, thank you all for joining me for my NADOC Week talk, which uh, this year is on languages in the library's manuscripts collection because, as Margie mentioned, the theme is Our Languages Matter. Um, I'm sorry if you've heard this talk before. I've given similar talks about languages in the, in the past. I won't be offended if you leave, but I will remember your faces. <laughs> <laughs> Especially you, Alison. <laughs> Today we'll be taking a look at just a few of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages contained within the library's manuscripts collection. So, as you might know, if you've ever uh, accessed the library's manuscripts collection, it's a chaotic sea of almost 12,000 organisational and personal records. This eclectic array of the brightest and sometimes the darkest thoughts of humanity includes the writings of our Prime Ministers, letters from Dame Edna, Mem Fox's drafts of Possum Magic, False Teeth, songs about clowns, the works... The apparent random nature of the manuscripts collection is one which is purposefully cultivated. Uh, the library expertly curates all of these diverse works because we want our national collection to reflect who we are as a nation. And of course you can't do that without collecting material by, for and about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Since forming shortly after Federation, the library has collected a range of objects, books, oral histories and manuscripts relating to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. 
However, many of these collections remain broadly described in our catalogue using very sort of generic terms, such as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, which means it can often be very difficult to find things concerning a specific language group or community. In 2004, uh, I came in as, a, as an Indigenous graduate and I undertook a project to slowly weed through some of the library's manuscripts to search for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander language material and to identify ways of more adequately describing these collections. So it was my job one day each week for a period of about five months to look through manuscripts that I considered likely to contain Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander material for language. And I only looked at manuscripts that are uniquely held by the library because I wanted to find things that made our library unique and special. The ultimate aim of this project was to make language collections more visible and accessible to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to, and to meet our commitments and responsibilities under the National and State Library's Australasia position statement. Particularly that it is a right of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to be informed about collections that exist relating to them, their culture and their language. Today's talk will be focusing a little bit on this project and on some of its outcomes, and I'll also highlight some of the uh, library's Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander language uh, collections in manuscripts in more detail. Uh, I'll start by saying I'm certainly not a linguist, so to any linguists sitting in the audience, I'm sorry, you'll have to sit there and grind your teeth while I mispronounce things and get language group names probably completely wrong. Um, as Muggy mentioned, I'd spent a few years working as an archaeologist uh, before coming here. Here's some happy snaps. Um, there's me in the Torres Strait. There's me in the lab. Um, there's me surveying with a cat. And there I'm spitting in the face of death in a Gary Word, which is in far western sort of Victoria. Um, so my previous career as an archaeologist made me the ideal candidate for a project in which you spend a lot of time looking for something and only occasionally find it. <laughs> also, as someone who grew up in a proudly Aboriginal family on the south coast of New South Wales, I know a few scattered words of what's commonly referred to as Koori as a language, but which probably isn't Koori at all. It's probably some sort of Ewan, like that's spread throughout New South Wales. Most of the words that I know are pretty bad words, um, words for poos and wheeze, <laughs> and most importantly, offensive names to call my siblings. So I know three ways of calling my brother stupid, but I don't know how to say hello. Um, <laughs> if you're desperate to know these words so that you too can offend your family in Koori, come find me at the back of the library after the talk. <laughs> But in saying that, um, my great-grandmother was fluent in her language, which was Gunai. She didn't speak it too often because she was always told as a child not to. Even after leaving uh, Lake Ty's mission where she grew up, well into her old age, she rarely spoke her language because there was a sense of shame associated with doing so. And when you don't use it, you lose it, or at least your kids do. It's estimated that approximately 250 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages were spoken at the time of European settlement. And here they are on uh, Norman Tyndale's famous but contentious map. It's contentious because boundaries, by the very nature, are always contentious, whether it's an Aboriginal tribal group or your neighbour's fence. Okay. <laughs> so uh, my family are from this 
this peach colored sort of blob down here, don't I? And you and just here on the south coast of New South Wales. Uh, an indigenous uh, language survey undertaken in 2012 by the uh, Australian Bureau of Statistics estimated that around 145 Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages are still actively spoken. At face value, this figure might not seem too bad. However, 67 of the 145 languages still spoken have fewer than 10 speakers. So as you can imagine, where there are fewer than 10 speakers, there's quite a high potential for language loss. Aboriginal languages were a spoken language, which means uh, that the library's manuscripts, collections, might be the only places in the entire world where some fragments or words of some Aboriginal languages survive, sorry, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages survive, which is both fantastic and terrifying. We have a real responsibility uh, not only to preserve these languages, but also to promote them. Before we can promote them, however, we have to identify them, which is what the uh, project that I undertook in 2014 set out to do. For your interest, the earliest known uh, European written uh, recording of an Aboriginal language uh, was in 1687. So lots of people aren't aware of that. Uh, when Dampier was up in Broome around uh, Dampier, <laughs> uh, he met the Bardi people there and he wrote down a word which was Gardi, which is now thought to be Nyadi, which means devil. I'm not terribly sure of the context of the recording. Um, so we can't claim to have the earliest European uh, written record of an Aboriginal language at the library, but we do have one of the earliest. Lots of people also unaware that uh, James Cook recorded an Aboriginal language list. In 1770, the Endeavour in need of repairs breached at a place known in the local language as Wabalumbal. Stranded for seven weeks, Cook made contact with the local Aboriginal people, the Gugu Yimitir, uh, and immediately compared them to the last uh, Indigenous people he came across in Papua New Guinea. Uh, he wrote, It is very probable that they are a different people and speak a different language. For the advantage of such who want to clear up this point, I shall add a short vocabulary of a few words in this New Holland language which we learnt on the Endeavour River. So he's giving us a place where he's recording this language. With this succinct statement, Cook highlights his role as the explorer, seemingly distancing himself from any personal interest in this language by claiming that he is writing it for others um, who might wish to know more. In neat, very legible writing, he noted down about 50 Gugu Yimitia words, which is a huge amount. Um, the first of which was a word for head. However, was it actually the word for head? Or could it have been, what's this? Maybe it was a word for elbow. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> a legitimate problem for linguists. Um, and then he wrote down features of the face, presumably picking things that could easily be pointed to, which can lead to a lot of mistakes when you're recording language. <laughs> Um, he also recorded words for objects and features of the landscape, canoes, cockle shells, things like sand. Uh, most famously, Gugu Yimitir is supposedly the language that we get the word kangaroo from. 
For your interest, um, the Endeavour Journal is on permanent display in the Treasures Gallery. Uh, my favourite representation of Cook in the library is this little wax portrait here, uh, which is affectionately known by library staff as Caramel Cook, because it's Cook at his most delicious looking. <laughs> Boomtish. <laughs> so the Europeans came to Australia, and with European settlement, Aboriginal people were increasingly pushed onto the fringes of society. Many Aboriginal people were moved onto church-built mission and government-run uh, state reserves. My own family lived at this mission in Victoria called Framlingham, um, but they were moved around a lot to various missions, so Ramahuk, uh, Lake Ties Mission, which is now known as Bunyanda. Um, these missions and reserves attempted to uh, abolish Aboriginal culture and to assimilate Aboriginal people into European society. And they did this through instituting various methods of controls. So when Aboriginal people lived on a mission, their lives were very strictly regulated. Uh, they were, their food was rationed. Um, whether they could live on the mission was controlled at all. You know, sometimes families were split up. You can live on the mission, you can't. Who they could marry was controlled. And of course, one of the other things that was controlled was what language you could speak. Augustus Friedrich Hagenauer, seen here, I think he's looking lovingly at his wife. I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, was a key figure in uh, Victorian Aboriginal missions and reserves in the mid to late 1800s. Particularly noticed, uh, noted for establishing the Ramahuk mission in Gippsland. Hagenauer believed in a patriarchal mission structure, viewing himself as something of an authoritarian father figure. As the man in charge of Ramihuk, he was a champion of assimilation. He forbade the use of traditional language and especially hated things like corroborees, writing, I must honestly say that I have had enough of that most abominable and moral nightly performance before ever I came to Gippsland. I then declared with all my power I would work against such an outrage on civilization and religion, and I shall continue my opposition as long as I am able to do so. In a bizarre dichotomy, despite largely banning Aboriginal people from speaking in their own language at Ramhiuk, Hagenauer appears to have quite liked the sound of at least one Aboriginal language being spoken. Travelling through Queensland, he wrote... I was requested to say a little about the language of the Aborigines of the North, but I do not know anything about it except that I liked its beautiful, ringing, clear sound. And I only found one word which is the same as that of the dialect of the Wimmera district, which is in Victoria. The bulk of Hagenauer's papers are held at the State Library of Victoria. However, the National Library holds two volumes of his letterbooks, which are bound books of carbon copies of Outwood's correspondence correspondence, so letters he's writing to other people. His letterbooks contain a three-page word list which Hagenauer writes is understood in the north, the northwest and Swan Hill districts of Victoria, but especially at Pine Plains, which seems to suggest that the language is uh, from a group called Wagaya. Although his letterbooks contain only a small amount of language material, what he did write was incredibly detailed. His writing certainly showed a greater appreciation for grammar than most of his contemporaries, and he was considered somewhat uh, of an expert on the matter of language. He would later contribute a section on language to Brow and Smythe's uh, seminal publication, Aborigines of Victoria.
Another missionary operating around the same time as Hagenauer during the mid to late 1800s was a man named Laura Mathieson, who looks remarkably similar to Hagenauer. <laughs> it is a different person, I swear. Um, Fison did much of his early work in Fiji, and while there he became aware of, a work, uh, of the work of a man by the name of Lewis Morgan. Morgan uh, was an American lawyer turned anthropologist who was obsessed with the Iroquois uh, Native Americans and began studying their kinship systems because he wanted to emulate their kinship systems in his frat society, which is weird. <laughs> What began as a seemingly very flippant reason for studying Native American kinship structures quickly became a landmark anthropo anthropological work which stretched across numerous Native American tribes um, into southern India and through Fison into Australia and the Pacific. Fison emulated uh, Morgan's study on kinship here. He saw Aboriginal people as ultimately a doomed race which would quickly be supplanted by the uh, British, which might explain his own motivations for recording information about what he viewed as a dying culture. Um, Fison gathered information about Aboriginal people by appealing to others for help by letter writing and through ads which he placed in various newspapers. So here's a newspaper call out. He's asking for people who um, are engaged with Aboriginal people, who work with them, uh, to send him information about the Aboriginal people so that he can compile it all into a landmark study and, and beat Morgan, I don't know. Fison's letterbooks, the, the bulk of which are held here at the library, are a wealth of information about Aboriginal kinship structures throughout Australia. He was a hugely prolific letter writer uh, with an incredibly wide reach. Most of his letters contain information about the kinship systems marriage customs and the genealogies of Aboriginal people living along the eastern coast of Australia. He didn't seem to have much success um, gaining contacts in Western Australia or the Northern Territory. Much of his letters were written to a man named A.W. Howitt, uh, who was a Victorian scientist and explorer, who had dedicated his own time to recording as much information as he could about the Gunnokurno of Gippsland, which is my nan's family, so lucky for me. Uh, without any particular aim. It was through uh, correspondence with Fison that Howitt's own work found a direction in recording kinship systems. Fison, together with Howitt, even recorded some details about my very own ancestors, so his collection has some personal meaning for me. Uh, as a child, my nan lived for a little while at uh, Lake Tyres Mission, which is in Gippsland, or as it's known in, in my language, uh, Bangyanda, a couple of years ago, my nan visited the Melbourne Museum and then she got her uh, hands on some copies of photos of a lady from Bunyanda named Kitty, who's seen here sitting in her, uh, in her bark canoe in Lake Ties itself. Uh, my nan very proudly showed me these photos of Kitty and this is one of them. The, the photos at the Museum Victoria uh, have very similar photographs to our collection. This one's kept in the National Library. Um, my nan wasn't sure um, how she was related. She just knew that she was related. Uh, this isn't terribly uncommon with Aboriginal families, which tend to be massive and convoluted. Your tenth cousin is just your cousin, not your tenth cousin. 
Um, weeks later, back at the library, after being shown these photos by my grandmother and getting an explanation of Kitty, um, I was leafing through uh, Laura Mephison's manuscripts when I came across this family tree. And I was reading through it. He's got a few little family trees in his manuscripts when right towards the bottom I spotted the name Kitty from Lake Ties. Um, this motivated me to dig a little deeper and find out who exactly Kitty was and how she was connected to my family. So I began tracing my own uh, family tree back until I got to my great-great-great-grandfather, George Thomas, seen here with his wife, Agnes, which is as far back as my family can trace their ancestry in Gippsland. I wanted to know who his parents were, um, and I naively thought I'd get the answer by purchasing his marriage certificate, which is here. And quite a few surprises on the certificate of George Thomas. The first surprise was seeing that name of uh, Augustus Hagenauer. So there he is right there. Um, and the other surprise was seeing Kitty listed as the mother of George and his wife. So... <laughs> So, and I thought, that's a bit worrying. <laughs> Until, through my hunting around and, and some further digging, I came across this book in the library's collection um, by a man I know as Uncle Philip Pepper. He's a gunno man and uh, Tester Arago. So this, gave me an this book gave me an explanation of um, how they're all connected. And... Uncle Philip Pepper explained uh, why Kitty was listed as a mother of both on the marriage certificate. Um, George Thomas, so that's that fellow there, was found in a log, and I know this sounds ridiculous, but it's true, um, orphaned as a boy by Kitty, who took him back to Lake Ties and raised him. Agnes, um, that's her there, was originally from Deniliquin and had been taken to Lake Ties by her own family, where she was taken in by Kitty as well and raised by her. So she's the adopted mother of these two people. And of course there's no way that uh, Friedrich Augustus Hagenauer would have signed off on the marriage if they were brother and sister. <laughs> Hagenauer did a lot of awful things, but saying yes to this marriage was the best decision he ever made, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> Otherwise, I wouldn't be here talking to you all today. So isn't it amazing how, our, how collections in the library can be so connected? Family history is experiencing a bit of a boom at the moment, and certainly no less so than for Indigenous Australians, whose family histories often exist outside of traditional European records. Oral histories from grandparents and documents such as mission records, letters and diaries, might sometimes be the only places this kind of information is preserved. However, the only way of finding this material in the library or archive is if it's adequately described, and that takes a considerable considerable amount of time and effort. The papers of Raymond Specht are a good example of the significance of a collection that's not quite coming across in the library's catalogue record. The catalogue doesn't really give any details about Specht's interactions with Aboriginal people, even at a very broad level. 
That's not to say our catalogers don't do an excellent job, because they do. We have the best catalogers in Australia. How often there is so, however, often there is so much to capture in a manuscript collection that a catalogue entry is really an inadequate way of describing all of its many aspects. <laughs> the large collections of manuscripts, we have, um, we have detailed finding aids which provide expanded information on the contents of a collection. However, they are very time-consuming to make for smaller collections like the collection of Respect. Generally, um, small collections don't get a finding aid. Specht, uh, seen here having a shower, was a member of the American-Australian Scientific Expedition to Arnhem Land, on which he acted as a field botanist. He wrote copious notes on the plants he saw, and he wrote his notes in three different languages, uh, Anindilyakwa, Gumach, and English. In mercifully clear handwriting, he also wrote down the traditional uses of each of these plants and his own scientific comparison notes. The records of the American-Australian Scientific Expedition to Arnhem Land are housed in our various cultural institutions around Australia and throughout America as well, and are a good example of how Aboriginal people are reclaiming research originally intended for a non-Indigenous audience. At the 60th year anniversary of the expedition, uh, Martin Thomas, who is a research fellow at the University of Sydney, uh, he conducted a major uh, study on this expedition and he wrote, indeed, many Aboriginal people in the region are now taking ownership of the documentation from the expedition in various ways. This is one example of how consequences can defy intentions. When the expedition was uh, conceived, no one anticipated that the subject of the study might one day be beneficiaries of it. I think this statement nicely summarises many, if not all, of our collections which relate to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Those who stand to benefit the most from these collections are not researchers, but instead are people with some personal links to the collection, be it through language, family or their culture. I often marvel that the journals of missionaries written in the hands of men who sought to break up traditional cultural beliefs can at the same time contain the most prolific recordings of Aboriginal culture and language, which can ultimately help in its revival. James Cook would never have dreamed that one day a descendant of the Gugu Yimitir, who was working at the library in manuscripts in 2012, would find information about her people in his Endeavour journal. People like Hagenauer, Fison, and Specht were all employed to work with Aboriginal people, so they're very obvious choices uh, in our search for language material. However, we also have many less obvious recorders of language. Our manuscripts are all written by different people from different backgrounds, and their interest in languages tend to reflect this, sometimes with surprising results. In the library's collection is a little black notebook uh, written by Polly McMahon, who was a 17-year-old farmer's daughter growing up in the Burragorong Valley in the late 1800s, and that's in New South Wales. I don't have a photo of Polly, but here's a farmhouse in Burragorong. <coughs> so you can, imagine her, you can imagine her inside, maybe at the window, sitting there with an abacus or churning butter or something. <laughs> I don't know what they did back then. <laughs> Polly writes to us from the distant past and her words echo down through the ages. 
The New South Wales speak a different language to most of the other colonies. In fact, the New South Wales tribes of only 200 miles apart speak much different. My father always got along well with the blacks and could speak the languages of two or three colonies. The author herself seems to have been able to speak some language, writing, When we were little, we used to talk a lot of the native language. My mother could, learn, uh, could never learn very much. She could not remember it. Our school teacher had a lot to put up with with our broken English. I find it quite fascinating that a European family in quite a small regional area was speaking an Aboriginal language. However, the Australian agricultural industry would have collapsed um, without the support of Aboriginal labour. So it does make perfect sense that people would have had to have learned some. I should note before closing on Polly that she's prone to some exaggeration. She writes of blood-soaked boomerangs that return to the thrower after slicing off heads. <laughs> while the headless corpse stands perfectly erect. So it's not happening. Boomerangs don't come back while they hit, oh, once they've hit something, unless they're magic. Um, <laughs> many of the words described as Aboriginal are a form of broken English. Um, Polly writes that Aboriginal word for nap is napo, and the word for white man is widem. Widem. Everyday people typically recorded words for objects, animals and place names, morsels of language which reflect their own personal interest or random questioning. There are numerous explorers, adventurers, people on journeys who encountered Aboriginal people and wrote the odd note about them. Like M.W. Shanahan, a gold prospector wandering around Cape York who recorded a list of tribal names and described in small detail the boundaries of their country. So really useful, detailed information. These kind of notes might be pertinent to native title applications, for instance. Or Frank Clune's journal of his adventures in Arnhem Land. Frank's lengthy 100-page narratives uh, contain scattered language interweaved with notes on basket making to the specific clothes worn by named individuals, so he's naming people and describing them, to instruction on how to mix ochre to get just the right colour, which is what we have here. We also have some things lurking in the collection which are quite sinister in nature, such as a journal of Henry James Emmett, who describes himself uh, in the introduction as one of the leaders of Governor Arthur's 1830 expedition to exterminate the Aboriginal people of Tasmania. All of these manuscripts, both wondrous and terrible, provide a tangible physical link to our shared past. By highlighting the rich diversity of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander languages and cultures of this country in our collections, we challenge the pervasive meta-narrative of a white Australia and diminish the unavoidable Eurocentricity of the library with its gleaming marble columns and cooked paintings. In the end, I managed to review around 60 collections I considered likely to contain Aboriginal language material. Out of those 60 collections, 32 actually contain language material. So I had a pass success rate. Um, they referenced approximately 51 different language groups. So 51 out of 250 is not too bad. This Google Earth map gives a bit of an overview of the geographic spread of our language material. Uh, so the bigger the dot that you can see in it, um, the more holdings we have that for that particular language group. We have pretty good national coverage. 
uh, we're a little skewed to the southeast, which might reflect my own research bias. I spent most of my uh, working life digging in fields in Victoria and gossiping with other Koori's, so I'm very familiar with the groups there. It's a bit blank on the western side, but I suspect that if I looked at the collections of Daisy Bates and Robert Hamilton Matthews in the library, that this map would look a bit more even. But far smarter heads of mine are working through these rather large and significant collections as part of other projects and probably doing a, a lot better job than I would have doing it. Uh, such as the University of Melbourne's Digital Daisy Bates Project, which you can read about online. So there are a few challenges with this project. Uh, the first being that language material can be really hard to find. Um, so if you see here, this is a magnifying glass held over a really bad photocopy of the back of an envelope, which contains three words in, a, in, a, in an unprovenance language. So that's part of our manuscript collection. So it was a bit of a, a, bit of a job finding that one. Sometimes I'd search through a manuscript only to find nothing. Language material could be a single word in a 400-page book. Uh, Robert Gow, who in 1861 travelled around Victoria on a mission to rescue the already dead working bills, uh, was guided by Aboriginal people during the entirety, entirety of his trip and presumably bothered talking to them on occasion. Otherwise, he probably would have died too. Um, despite being guided on his journey by Aboriginal people, he only wrote down a single Aboriginal word, which bizarrely was one that he had heard from some Europeans. <laughs> That one word that he recorded was the name of a spirit named Mindy, who's a rainbow serpent, who punished the wicked by making them sick. It's now believed that Mindy was a way in which Victorian Aboriginal people conceptualised the spread of European diseases and their terrible impact on their societies. So again, with language recordings, there's usually a much broader context. Why are people recording language? Um, this one word may give us some hints about interactions between Aboriginal people and European settlers at this static point in time. Finding language material was only really the first half of this project. And while I started out with the intention of solely recording language, I quickly realised, as you've seen through this talk, that most of the language had this broader context from which it was impossible to separate. I, I had to describe this content in a way that meets the needs of researchers, but most importantly meets the needs of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And I also had to think of ways of making this material more accessible, which meant indexing what I'd found using specific language group names, which isn't something really done through our catalogue as of yet. Um, and that's quite a challenge. <laughs> as an example, let's have another quick look at my family because I love to talk about myself. Uh, <laughs> the Gunai Kurnai people of Victoria. Now, my language group uh, can't agree amongst themselves as to what their name is. There's a few different ways of spelling um, Gunai. There's Kurnai. Some people believe it's Gurnai. Um, they're collectively known as the Gunai Kurnai. Um, I identify as Gunai. Some people identify as Kurnai. Others identify as both Gunai Kurnai. Gunakurna language has five dialects. Uh, at what level should we be recording our collections in a library? 
You can see why this might be a challenge for a cataloger or an archivist who isn't specialised in this field. When you've got 250 languages in Australia, it can be quite tricky trying to identify where a language might be from with special collections. Lots of people who recorded language only wrote very basic notes about the people that they recorded it from. They often didn't use things like tribal or language group names. Sometimes I've found references to a language group that I can find no reference of to anywhere else, so I'm not sure what they were told. They might write things like, we travelled three hours west of Melbourne to describe where they recorded language. And how did they travel west from Melbourne? By foot, by horse, uh, by buggy? It can be very tricky identifying the correct language group. I've created a research guide um, for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander language material in the library's collection, which I'll quickly show you now. I've got everything crossed that the internet's working. <gasps> yes. Okay, so click on our research guides. Browse A to Z, Z, and you can see all of our research guides. So my research guide is called Australian Indigenous Language Collections. And here we are. So the front page really provides an overview of the language material I found as part of my 2014 project. A description of how to use a guide and some basic information of naming conventions of language group names, which are all based on the spelling in the Iatsis Thesaurus um, because they're the premier institute for... Uh, research and study about Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And this is the same consistent approach adopted by many of the um, state and territory libraries as well. So they're all using these naming conventions and language group codes. Then I've got a state-by-state -state, uh, breakdown of the language groups. So if we go into New South Wales, it's all in alphabetical order. Of course, there's going to be some uh, overlap with language groups and states. Uh, state boundaries tend to be linear, um, while Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander boundaries tend to follow features of the landscape, such as watercourses, mountain ranges, trees and stones. Although having a research guide is handy, there are still numerous obstacles in the way of uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander or, uh, people accessing material. Uh, the most obvious is the tyranny of distance. I'll just go back to my slide. Many people also wouldn't generally associate the National Library as a place which has Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander material. Although this is something that's changing through things like the graduate projects, um, which, which really do highlight and provide exposure for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander project, uh, collections. Uh, I know I probably wouldn't have thought that the library had much in the way of language material, especially with other cultural institutions such as the Museum and Iatsis right across the pond from us. I'd go there first and maybe not necessarily come here. Hopefully the research guide I created will help uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people find material in the library, but like this project, it's really only a starting point. It's a useful tool for engaging with communities and that's something we've done through our Ask a Librarian service. Um, it's useful for things such as language repatriation and communicating in a more meaningful way. 
But there needs to be some level of outreach, otherwise it's just sitting there hoping somebody stumbled across it via a Google search for a language group name. For those interested, uh, my own 2014 project was uh, based on the State Library of New South Wales massive language project, which ran for a few years. They hired a linguist from IATSIS uh, called Michael Walsh, some of you might know, and they found some amazing language collections in their library. If you haven't already, I really encourage you to go take a look at their Rediscovering Indigenous Languages project because you'll weep at its beauty. Um, they've digitised a lot of their original collections, so their manuscripts, and made them available online so you can actually read them. They've continued the, uh, the work with their languages. For NADOC, they've even launched an online storybook called My Weekend with Pop, which is just beautiful. Um, it's the same story about a boy's weekend spent camping with his grandfather, written and spoken in five different Aboriginal languages, uh, including Gamilaroi, Wiradjuri, Parkinji. In 2016, so last year, New South Wales Department of Education made significant headway to incorporate Aboriginal languages into its schools' learning programs. So this, this work with languages is really timely and it creates really useful resources for students and teachers. It goes to show that there's all kinds of wonderful things happening out there with language at the moment. Preserving languages, revitalising sleeping languages, and libraries, through their collections, have a big role to play in this. Uh, before I open up for questions, I'd just like to uh, draw attention to another uh, NADOC Week talk that we've got on Thursday at 12.30pm uh, by uh, one of our Indigenous staff members, Ryan Stoker. So he'll be talking, uh, he'll be giving a talk titled Our Voice, which is a, a talk about the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander oral history collection. So definitely worth getting along to that one if you can. Uh, does anybody have any questions? Ah, uh, yeah? Uh, my own spelling? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that, that's... that's that's, a, that's an issue with um, Aboriginal language group names. They're often, it's a spoken language, so they're spelt um, in a variety of different ways. IATSIS has sort of um, provided a structure for um, consistent spelling. It's not perfect, but it also, they also ascribe each language group a specific code. So Gunai Kerno might be language code S16, which is static, so unlike the language group name, that doesn't change. So it provides a sort of persistent identifier for that language group, which is useful for libraries. In case a tra traditional owner group goes, no, we don't want our language group name spelt that way, which is right, they should have control over how um, their language group name is spelt, um, but it can create issues for catalogers.